Hello and welcome to another episode of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen Hedanhu and I'm an author, a journalist and a precious jewel trapped in a dashing <laughs> stomach. Joining me is author, biographer and dispossessed Russian royalty, Laura Woods. <laughs> Today we're talking about Eva Ibbotson's A Countess Below Stairs. Laura. Yes. This book, tell me why it's so special. Um, everything about it is so special. Um, it's just really beautiful, I think. It's it's the sort of book that you can luxuriate in. It's such a comfort read. It's like a kind of... It's got such a fairy tale quality yeah. about it, I think. And it's so escapist. Um, and I just love it. I think it's a beautiful... I think this book is a jewel, definitely. It's really In a dash and stomach? Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, that we refuse to operate on. <laughs> um, what I loved about this book, apart from everything you just said, the fairy tale, the history, the sumptuousness yeah. of it, is that it's one of those few books that manages to convey a really vast world in a very small amount of pages. Yeah, she's... Amazing! I, I just think she's amazing at that, and I think um, one of the things that I thought when I was rereading it this time was about how I'm always struck by how clever she is as a writer. But I think her strength is in the way she writes her characters, mm-hmm. because there are so many characters in this book, yeah. like hundreds and hundreds of characters, and each one of them even if they don't take up very much space on the page, is so yeah. fully realised and you completely know who that person is and you, and you, um, not to, it's not just that you know who they are, you care about them so instantly oh, as well, which she's so good at. And there's so, there were so many bits where um, I was, because I knew, I, this is my first Eva Ibsen, I'd never heard of her before this juncture <laughs> for all my sins and I kept the, um, all the characters, it's like, oh, I hope there's a novel about them. I hope, <laughs> I hope she has another extended universe because yes. they have that feeling, they feel like they've popped in from their own fully furnished universe. Yes, yes, that's just to, it. Just to say hi. Um, I'm going to do a quick plot summary to get everyone up to date. Although I have to say, um, when I tweeted the reading list for this season, this was the one where people were like, oh my God, oh my God. take everything, take, it, take my money. So, after the Russian Revolution, Countess Anna Grzynski flees to England with her governess in an attempt to make a new life for herself and her family. She winds up working as a maid for the Westerholm family, a once great English country household that has been decimated by the First World War. Anna throws herself into her work and wins the whole household over until Rupert, the new Earl of Westerholm, <laughs> returns home from war with his new wife Muriel, or his new fiance, I should say, a woman who considers eugenics a hobby. Yes. As Anna and Rupert fall in love, the wedding hurtles closer and Muriel's true character is revealed. Um, I don't know where to start. I guess the start, but I think I've become more British just by reading that. Like I've been in England for 10 years and now I feel like I've been here for 30 yes. years. Just by saying the, yes. the new Earl of the Western. New Earl. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I, and, and I love the idea of um, that Anna is this secret countess in a, in a world that's kind of couched in the sort of British aristocracy anyway yes. so it's yeah it's, it's so fascinating because when I um, read the back of the book and it's very like oh when a Russian countess as I just said when a Russian countess falls down on her luck blah blah um, and then you you assume it's going to be one of those books a bit like um Sophie Kinsella's The Undomestic Goddess, where it's her hiding her status. But actually, because of the historical context of the novel, because it's it's post-World War I, because so many people have either slid down so far in the world or gone up so far in the world, and we see a lot of that in this book, people have lost 
huge swathes of their families. The whole staff mm. of this house has been wiped out. And it's and actually people know from the beginning, not that she's a countess, but that she's this obviously very well brought up yeah, girl. Absolutely. And they're just kind of shrugging, they're like, you know what, the war did things to us all. Yeah, and I I love um how also at the beginning of the book there's when she turns up to work everyone's initial response to her is one of complete dismay. Like, oh, here's this proper lady and and she's not, you know, we understand why she's here, but she's not going to be able to do it. And then part of Anna's charm is that she just hurls herself into anything um, in such a way that she's determined to be successful at it. Um, And I really love that. I really love how also she, she frames her kind of domestic role as a sort of, um, blow for, for women everywhere as this kind of if you know if my cousin can go off and work and if my brother can go off and work and drive then, a taxi and, yeah uh, then I can go off and work and no one's going to stop me from helping to provide for my family and so yeah I think it's I think it's really lovely when she arrives in that way and kind of um kicks back against everyone's expectations of her. And there's this... It's interesting because, I mean, the pretext is so sad. It's a very sad thing of, like, you're introduced and there's this kind of 15-page prologue where it just gives you this this young adult's life up until that point. And she's born into this wonderful Russian family in the height of Imperial Russia. And she's, like, you know, minks everywhere, jewels everywhere. (laughs) It's like Chicago. Um, um, And uh, then it's sort of... There's this beautiful, beautiful bit. I'm actually going to read from it. Um, It's on page 12. (laughs) And where you've spent um, pages and pages just being like... and, And for her third birthday, she got a... Tiny crystal otter. <laughs> yeah, yes. Fab, the Fabergé just rolling in. It's so fabulous and it's, it's so beautiful and you get all this opulence. And then suddenly it just says on page 12. And then the Archduke with the face of an Ill, ill-tempered bullfrog and the charming wife who had so dearly and unaccountably loved him were assassinated at Sarajevo. To the Russians, accustomed to losing czars and grand dukes time and time again this way, it seemed just another in an endless succession of political murders. But this time, the glittering toy that was the talk of war slipped from the hands of politicians and a world ended. And what I love about that, apart from just the sort of kind of Mitfordy kind of like, mm. oh, and the ugly Duke with the lovely <laughs> wife, blah, blah, yeah. gossip, gossip, gossip. Yeah, really chatty. I love how it's, it, and it kind of sets up the pretext for the whole book, which is, and a world ended. Yes. Not the world ended. A world and yeah. it's like this beautiful thing of this lovely young woman who like has had the best of everything in life to an obscene extent and uh, that part of her life ends and it's not it, it is a tragedy her, her father dies it's awful but it's not it's not like everything she does after that is awful like she makes friends she moves on yeah. it's a book about coping with changed circumstances yeah absolutely and the way and again when we were saying about how um, Eva does this amazing thing of doing so much with so little like you you were just saying you know that's page 12 of the novel you have this sort of 15 page um section at the beginning which is like heaven it's just um, so so gorgeous to read and it's this really indulgent moment of being in that um kind of high luxury 
magical fairy tale idea dream of what Russia would would have been then um and then she kind of does such a good job of um breaking your heart when she talks about because in such a short amount of time you already know that Anna's relationship with her father is so special and then um you know he dies at the right at the beginning of the book and that's so that's so sad but she also like you say she sets it up so that um what comes afterwards if you were kind of outlining it could be such a such a miserable story it could be this really terrible trying story but because it has because Anna is so resilient and so joyful and I think that's a really big thing in this book she is so full of joy that it literally you know lights her up and everyone talks about that the whole way through the book um she she it's just about like you said finding joy in different places and she kind of um even though the story goes to some dark places there's still the lightness of touch there and the, and the pleasure in things yeah it's really special i think and what's nice is there's a slight hint of like marie antoinette sort of playing yeah. at being a milkmaid thing in that she has this book that she's found. Sort <laughs> yeah, of like I love it. The guide Sarah to Strickland. Selena Strickland. <laughs> Selena Strickland, yeah. yeah. Um, she's like, oh, she finds a 600-page tombstone on like Victorian <laughs> housekeeping yeah. and it's like, oh, find my carbonate of this yeah. to do this. And she just quotes it endlessly throughout the book and she's kind of has this sort of fantasy of being a kind of a Dickensian yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and because she has this kind of in the, the beginning of that book, you, you also you find out she has this history of of throwing herself so wholeheartedly into things. And part of that is, you know, like she she has that moment where she decides um to dress in rags and wear wooden shoes that are supposed to yeah. be fashioned by Tolstoy or something. And she's yes. kind of living this she and and her family a sort of look on her with indulgence the way she checks herself into these things and um there's that scene later on where she's at the party and her brother turns up and she has to suddenly mm. um n- not be a maid but her hands are bleeding and when yeah. someone says oh but you know that's just Anna she was dipping her hands in the soda so that it would be a convincing performance yeah, no yeah. one questions that because it's so in keeping with how she behaves just committed all yeah. the time never yeah. not committed yeah just whatever she's doing she's a hundred percent into it yeah. isn't she and that's part of the pleasure of reading about her character i think yeah. i don't know anything about eve Bitson. Um, and honestly, she is the perfect sentimental garbage author to cover because there's not that much out there about her. Mm. But I understand you're working on a biography. Yeah, I am. Yes, um, it's it's really early stages, so I don't know as much about Eva Ibbotson as I will know about her. But the little bit that I know already is so interesting, and it's so easy to see how much of her life informs the way that she writes and with this book I think I guess what I found particularly striking about it was she um she was born in um Germany and moved to Vienna as a while she was still a baby um and then her parents divorced she was living with her grandparents and with the in in the 30s with the oncoming of the second world war she's kind of evacuated out of Vienna over to England. She comes over to Britain as a refugee. Um, and her mother, Anna Gabena, who's a, um, at that time a very famous um, playwright, who's kind of a radical 
a playwright whose work's being burned by Hitler, and she is living in London uh, now with her second husband, who is a Russian, um, wow. who, who Eva had this amazing relationship with, uh, Sasha, and he, um, and they, they're living in this house in London, which is, from the sound of it, is like the Russian club with all mm. these kind of big characters who have all kind of fled from the continent, um, who are living in not great circumstances, very reduced circumstances. Um, and they're just these big characters. And you can see how there's so much of this book that she's taken from wow. that experience. So even though um, this book is dealing with the kind of aftermath of the First World War, I think it's kind of fair to say that quite a lot of what's inspiring her is is this kind of time around the Second World War mm. when she was a child. Mm. That's fascinating. And it's also, it's there's... Um, very important character in the book called uh, Ollie, short for Olive. Oh my gosh, the Honourable Ollie. The Honourable, and honestly, I don't enjoy a, you know, a plucky, winsome, disabled child in literature. I just don't. It doesn't sound like it's going to be great, no, does it? You know I mean? and she's like, oh, it's like, oh, the little cripple that everyone loves kind of thing. And it's a, it, um, those things are, always strike me as tiny Timish too much yeah, and they're yeah. a bit heavy handed. But this is, this character, this child is written so beautifully. She's, she is the character I was just saying to you that when I was rereading this book for the hundredth time on the train on the way in, I finished it. And I, even though I've read it so many times, there were tears at the end. Um, and and it's when the Honourable Olive pops up and oh. starts talking in her kind of mothering tone. And I just think she's such a brilliant character. But so much of... Um, but is that... But we could say, because there is a... So she um, is preyed upon by the terrible Muriel. Oh, You're yes. terrible, Muriel. You're so terrible, Muriel. <laughs> Which we'll get to in a minute. There's so, I mean, we could do the whole thing on Muriel, to be honest. But um, she goes, then um, she's sort of saved by Anna from this terrible um, run-in she has with the terrible Muriel. Um, and then she go, She does go to the Russian club. Yeah. So you could almost see Eva Ibbotson going with her stepfather. Yeah, to... absolutely. That idea of a child being there and looking around it as this kind of magical place yeah. that's full of these kind of weird wonderful characters and, and people drinking to her beauty yeah, and that's the stuffed my, corpse oh my gosh, and that's my favourite when they say um, that, that so Olive's kind of been very hurt and she's feeling very sad and she gets kind of swept into this party and and that's another bit that kind of does something to me, puts a lump in my throat when they say, and they all drank toasts to her beauty and then smashed the glasses because, so they'd never be raised to a lesser human. Oh, <laughs> and, my God. And you can just see her little face and it's so, yeah, it's Oh, so it's so gorgeous. And yeah, I mean, we can't talk about Olive without talking about going back to the terrible Muriel. Yeah. And honestly... This is um, this reminds me of a of Daphne du Maurier in lots of ways in that mm. sense of like um, the sort of middle classy shyster upstart coming <laughs> yeah. into the aristocracy. Yeah, Why are you ruining yeah, our aristocracy? Yeah. And um, and this this woman comes in and we get the distinct sense that she has preyed on the new Earl Rupert yeah. um, while he's been recuperating in a in a hospital after. Uh, some kind of war got, injury. He, yeah, his plane's shot down, I think, or something. Yeah. <laughs> something, something misc war wound. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> miscellaneous injury from the war. Yeah. 
And um, she's sort of she's a sort of um, well moneyed middle class. Um, kind of rising through society, a, a grasper. And um, she sort of traps him into a proposal and then yeah. sweeps into this um, sort of jolly, eccentric, aristocratic sort of house where everybody, like there's, you know, servants who are sort of like throwing things across the, throwing like objects at each other, like blunt objects. There's a kind of a pervert uncle that everyone loves. <laughs> yeah. There's all these yeah, characters. <laughs> yeah, all these outsized characters. And then Muriel comes in and she's like, First of all, she's very interested in eugenics. Yes. I mean, quite the red flag. Yeah. <laughs> Instantly. I wonder in your work around this historical time, and I, I think you're writing the foreword for a new edition of this, is that it? No, no. Um, no, They, but they are re-releasing, because um, Ella is writing a foreword for one of I them. Know. They're re-releasing um, them as for an adult market which is something else that we could maybe yeah. would be maybe interesting to talk about because um you know in recent they she wrote them as adult novels but they've yeah. been published as young adult novels um which i think is right i think they are amazing young adult novels yeah um and i think the reason for that is because when she was writing them there wasn't really such a thing as young adult fiction yeah and she she didn't know that she was writing amazing young adult fiction but she was yeah um but yeah they're being um published again with these new with new forwards by brilliant writers oh, because it she's such a writer's writer that's mm. another thing that i think is really interesting about her is that when you when you find someone else who's read her work it, she's she's a person that writers get so enthusiastic yeah. about really we really love her <laughs> we really care about her a lot so um yeah so, yeah. so. so muriel uh-huh. uh what a, like she's got this it's what's really fascinating and prickly and like really horrifying about this woman who is much worse than any de Moyer villain yeah. Um, is that she has a legitimate, very beautiful, very blonde, very Aryan, and this is, you know, the 20s, they're the late teens. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and this is the beginnings of sort of a, a fascist ideology beginning yeah, to think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And she, we first meet her, and she's going to all these lectures by the... Uh, self-titled Dr. Lightbody. <laughs> a good oh body, Lightbody. The worst. The worst the man worst, in the world. The worst. And, and we definitely should talk about him and his wife because yeah, that, yeah. oh gosh, he's, yeah, he's the worst. And, and they're just, at first, at these lectures that seem, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight and history, we're all like, oh, this is what led to Nazism. But she's sitting there and she's like, well, yes, we breed animals, so they should be stronger and meatier and whatever. And of course we should breed humans. Mm-hmm. A leap. Um, we should like yeah, people should be together based on having very strong children. That after all is the point of marriage and family. Da, da, da. Yeah. And she just keeps making these jumps and then she she's and it's 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 written in this way where she's obviously a villain, but you understand the lineage of her thoughts and why they go there. Yeah, you know? yeah. And because I think something that she does that's really interesting is she she has Anna make a point about the chickens that so that she's Anna says later on she wouldn't marry her cousin. Yeah. And part of the reason that she wouldn't marry her cousin is because she knows that it's bad for you it's it's yeah. it's bad for your children if you marry so closely into your family and so it's almost like she gets this point of which is kind of Muriel's starting point mm-hmm. right she starts by talking about 
in that kind of small way and then and then makes these jumps and I think um it's one of the things that makes this book reading it now so timely is because there's this sense that Muriel is this um insidious voice Mm -hmm. of um this kind of eugenic propaganda that she's saying but I'm I'm not being cruel I'm being being practical um and you know this is how we need to look at it and so much of of the so many of the awful things that she does in the book she she's such a good villain because she does them in such a way that like when she essentially cuts off ties with the Jewish family yeah who are these kind of beloved people who are friends with everyone and she does it in this kind of I'm sure it would make you uncomfortable to come to a Christian ceremony so she does it in this very honeyed way um that presents itself as being for the for the good of everyone else but that's actually this really awful way of pushing a a terrible agenda it's such a heartbreaking scene as well because you've got these these, this family who are wonderful and everyone yeah. everyone who, li- who already lives in this area is wonderful yeah um, yeah yeah and they sort of they're yeah um polish jews who sort of made a killing in the garment industry and now they're living in the lap of luxury and they're very generous with it and they're just uh talking about oh we sent over a dinner service and oh is that, is that the thank you note in the yes post? yes and then mrs rabinovich is just um standing there with this note in her hand and we don't get to see what the note says but it's this like horrible moment where she's like, and it was the thing that had followed her her whole life and would follow her. Yeah, forever. like it's the it's the dark black thing that they're constantly afraid of, yeah. and that that they that they're worried is going to kind of raise its head. And and I think it it's even more moving because this family have been introduced in such a way that it talks about how when they move to the area they they assumed that they would be met with anti-Semitism and then they weren't um, and they were kind of embraced by the community and 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 made these incredible friends and um, became so well-loved. And so it's almost, it, it's, it kicks that bit harder because yeah. it's like they've relaxed. They thought, yeah. they, they go in ready to be and treated the, and, as And then here way. are their dearest friends yeah. introducing this anti-Semite Absolutely. to them. Who is now going to be the new mistress of the house. Yeah, and, and, that's, and so then that's the, that's the end of it. That changes everything because yeah. they, that's the end of their, that as far as they understand in that moment, that's the end of their friendship with all these other people because by cutting off that one person they cut off everyone else yeah and, and that's how muriel operates as you said in this like very honeyed way like mm. there's a she she the only time she, in her eyes that she's ever done wrong is the moment she meets ollie and she she's already agreed and everyone already loves muriel because she said oh you are you're a friend of the family you're that she can be my flower girl she's nine years old or whatever yeah. and then nobody has it has mentioned that she's got crutches i think she's or? she's got no she's got one she's she's got a limp like a bat she's got one leg shorter than the other than the other because she had polio right yes yes that's it and um then she muriel just sort of like completely her hard drive just gets wiped in the moment she's so horrified by this disabled child that she just says why did nobody say she was the cripple yeah and what it, and how it's handled and obviously everyone it's a horrible thing to say but like how it's handled is like very like 
they're so aware that this preteen girl who's so beloved by everyone, Alia, she's in this point in her life where someone could say the wrong thing and it could ruin her life forever. It yeah. could be internalized and metabolized and would come out and they're just so afraid of it happening. Yeah, yeah. And I and what and one of the things that I really love is how righteously angry everyone's allowed to get. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I yeah. really that that really stops you know, you were talking about um, how there's this kind of danger with Olive's character of her tipping into being kind of overly sentimental. And I think that's true of many of the characters in the book. Yes. Um, but she, but, but, it, but that it never quite happens because there's always this something sharp at the back of it. Yeah. And everyone's allowed to get really angry. And one of the things that I absolutely love is that the, the, the way that the kind of story with Olive... Um, resolves itself by... Yes, tell us about that. Yeah, so it's so great how... Um, so in in the end, Muriel kind of... They, they think they've sort of swept past this a bit and Olive's obviously been upset, but is still planning to be the bridesmaid. But then um, at, at the end of the novel, Muriel goes and... And has a kind word with her, and about how the, the long ceremony would be hard on yes, her legs. Exactly, um, and that's the moment that Olive is broken, um, and she she won't come to the wedding. She can't. She stays in bed with her, you know, and this really heartbreaking with her face her face to the wall. She can't talk to anyone. She says something like she she turns. Someone comes to brush her hair and she turns them away because she says, cripples don't need to have nice hair. Yeah, we don't need to be seen. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, and it is exactly that moment of that that woman has broken hair. That is the moment in her life where something terrible has happened um, that's going to stay with her. And then, and then I mean, it, there's... This is what I was saying about there's being so many amazing characters. There's also out of <laughs> out of nowhere, there's also this amazing character who's like um, Anna's old nursemaid from yes. Russia, who wears like a saint's finger around her <laughs> neck, and and what a, I mean, she's a, she's a really funny character. She's the real day of the book, <laughs> yeah, isn't she? <laughs> absolutely, but she turns up um, and kind of shutters herself away with Olive and um, after they've had this talk Olive is fine and all that anyone can hear is this kind of strange Russian <laughs> chanting behind the door and then after the fact her Olive's stepmother finds um, like what's obviously a sort of wax voodoo doll of Muriel <laughs> so with good. pins stuck in so her satisfying. and it is it's so satisfying and it's exactly that sort of thing that stops Olive from tipping over into becoming the sort of Dickensian yeah. um, you know sentimental figure she has this sharpness and and the book celebrates it the book doesn't say you know but ultimately it it was wrong to, mm. for her to you know the, to do that yeah, she should like, have no, been the person yeah. <laughs> it's like yes good we hate her good for her oh um, what, what's so interesting there's a kind of um a double-sided snobbery thing happening throughout this book whereby um the character, the main, the characters we love, the, the the heroes that we love, and these these this family that live in the country and their friends who are all fabulous and all under the tyranny of Muriel. Mm. Um, they are fantastic. They're diverse. They're interesting. They love each other. There's an equality of sorts there. 
But there's also this sense in the book that anybody who steps outside of the, well, I'm the master of the house and therefore in this patriarchal role whereby I know what's best for the servants, I respect them, but they are my lessers kind of thing. There's a very prickly politics happening there. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's, it, it is, there's a very careful thing that happens, which is, I think she gets around that partly by sending Anna in, sort of like yeah. undercover boss style, yeah, to, yeah. To, to work with alongside these people. So she becomes sort of, at some points, she's sort of on a level with them. But also the, 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 the book starts from the position that Rupert loves all the servants and he wants yeah. to look after and them. And they love him. And they love him. But they are also his servants. Um, and part of the reason that he and Anna make sense as a couple is because he sees those characters as individuals and he cares about... And he when he turns up to the house, he's been away at war. He, his older brother, who was supposed to inherit, has died... Um, and when he turns back up at the house the staff all line up on the stairs to greet him and it's really it's a really nice scene because it's the first scene where he meets Anna but also because it makes such a point about how he stops he hasn't seen them for like four years or whatever and he stops and and asks specific questions and remembers stuff about everyone and um, and then then when Muriel comes in that's part of the tension of that, is her money is supposed to help him provide a home for these that's people. That's the thing, so he's terrified that, that because they, they're broke, they're, mm. they, they're the, your, your standard sort of land-rich, cash-poor aristocrats, yeah, and yeah, yeah. the war has absolutely ravaged them, and they need to sell, really, but they don't want to fall out of the family, and they don't want all these people to become unemployed, because they're a family themselves. Yeah. These dozen servants have been together basically their whole lives. Yeah. And they love each other and it's splitting up that family. And so he's basically throwing himself on the altar of the rich Muriel so he can save these people. Yeah, and but Muriel has a big problem with um, the, the relationship between them and the servants, right? She says on several occasions, I don't understand why you're so familiar with them. Mm. This isn't really how they should be treated. Um, and, and it's interesting, like you say, there's a lot of complicated things happening because Muriel doesn't come from the same yeah. aristocratic background, mm. but she's the one who wants to... who be wants the lines unblurred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's that thing of... Um, obviously, she's despicable, mm. and it's so much fun to hate, and everything she does is inexcusable, but there is this sense of... Sli- I have a slight pity for her, because it's almost like she's a person who doesn't know how to have servants but has seen a lot of films about it. (laughs) And she comes in and she's like, oh yes, Anna, do this over there. And Anna's like, this isn't how you treat servants. I've had servants since I was born and this isn't how you treat them. Yeah, but that's exactly exactly one of the tensions, isn't it? Is that Anna, who he's, you know, who you know from the beginning of the book has grown up in absurd absurd circumstances Mm. as a countess who's the absolute pinnacle of everything that muriel would want to be yeah yeah she she acts in a way that's completely at odds with the way that muriel acts and that's and that's you know the true i mean that's how it is in the book is that that's the true countess that's the true quality of the countess coming through is this kind of benevolent spirit it's very a little princess isn't it yeah all girls are princesses yes yes definitely yes yeah yeah to go back to 
Dr. Lightbody and his wife, for me, they were the most like proper Wodehouse, Midfordy, yeah. Evelyn Wall, <laughs> properly funny. Yeah. Like absolutely farcical. Yeah, it's the most awful thing and it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. This is a bit where, so he's got this, he's this, obviously this doctor of eugenics and he's preaching his, like, oh, we should all marry strong Scandinavians for some yes. reason and yes. then he goes home to his wife who seems like a lovely woman mm-hmm. a just beleaguered angel who's always sewing his pants and making him cakes yeah. and she's like got tea she low-key has TV <laughs> yes. for the whole novel and he's so annoyed by her co- oh she's always coughing oh it's, like, it's literally it's like something from a radio play it's yeah. hilarious yeah. and uh, then she suddenly dies or she gets sent she's rushed to hospital dies very quickly of TB and uh, the doctor's actually like yeah she was in the middle of cooking a chop uh, a pork chop and then she fainted and then someone a neighbour came in and got her and he was like oh was like, and Dr. Lightbody couldn't help but wonder what had happened to the <laughs> chop to the chop yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's like from a different thing, isn't it? It's yeah, like a whole different yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I I just th- I just love that. I think you're right. It's so, it's it's so funny. And then also, but also, um, it's so cr- it, his he, obviously he's it's so cruel. And it, the reason it's funny is because because he's so completely oblivious. He's just yeah. completely oblivious to how to how any human being would behave in this sort of situation. And it, it mentions how they got married in the first place because he got her pregnant, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then he's like, Ugh. and then two months later she had a miscarriage, so what oh. a waste of time that was. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh no, it's awful. He's, wor- he's such yeah. a simpering... Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he... It's also interesting how he's... Oh, God, he's so funny because also that scene where he is eyeing up the eagle in the pet shop. Oh, my God, tell us the whole... Okay, so he meets Muriel in Harrods, I think. Well, it's like fake Harrods, I think, right? It's definitely Harrods. Okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about the eagle. Well, she's kind of upset because they've introduced a pet section, which for some reason offends her slightly and then she goes into this section because she sees Dr Lightbody there and and it's written in in such a way that it doesn't at first tell you what he's looking at but it describes how kind of he's staring at this thing with such longing (laughs) and and such you know admiration Mm -hmm. and um yeah and it's this and it's and it's so grotesque because it's this golden eagle he's like yeah. chained to a post or yeah, something yeah. and he talk, starts talking to Muriel about how he's imagining not for himself it's not for him it's but for everyone else to see him with this eagle perched would on her yeah, would greatly. help the cause because he can picture how magnificent it would look and he's not really interested in the way it looks but for other people it would be <gasps> oh, so helpful so funny. and then there's this great line where it doesn't tell you what she says but it says something about how she agrees with him but then she sort of gently points out some of the practical difficulty I think he he has this image of it like swooping down and landing on his shoulder and and obviously she and because this is part of her character she's very practical she's like the perfect 
woman for him because she wants to support him and manage yeah. him, basically. Um, but yeah, so the, there are these scenes with him where he's absolutely grotesque. He's low-key my favourite character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this bit as well where he like, um, his wa- like they're getting married on the Saturday, his wife dies on the Thursday. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh shit, well I can't go to the wedding now. Oh, but I want to go to the wedding. Actually less selfish. <laughs> if I don't tell anyone my wife died, and I go anyway. suffer in silence. <laughs> no, and he goes through the whole process of doesn't he of being like, maybe if I wore a tasteful black armband and then he's like, oh, but then I wouldn't be able to wear my super cool Greek god costume that I've bought for the fancy dress party. That wouldn't really go. Much better if I pretend it hasn't happened and save everyone. And just that not upset Muriel, you know? She's (laughs) a nice gal. She's been through a lot. Yeah. Not for me, you understand. Not for myself. And what's so good about it as well, I think it's, you know, it it, it draws a straight line to where we are with our current neo-fascism in politics. Yeah. Is that, like, fascism and eugenics and um, finding intellectual ways to make white people feel good about themselves absolutely. has always been for losers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 100%. Yes, exactly that. And I think it's I think what's really interesting about the book is that they don't um, end up in like necessarily an unhappy way because it's okay to talk about the end, right? Yes, of course, we do we all spoilers, yeah. <laughs> um, but they... Um, um, yeah, he and Muriel, you know, which we need to talk about, get scared off from the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have a note on that, don't worry. Um, and um, he and Muriel depart for America together. His wife's conveniently dead now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this kind of gleam of uh, appreciation in Muriel's eye when she finds that out, that they're going to go to America. And it's not a terrible ending for them. But you know, it's like you were saying earlier about the the way it, you know that this is the beginning of this kind of fascist use of eugenics. You know they're going to be Nazis and you mm. know it's going to end badly for them. And that in itself is quite satisfying. That's true. I was going to say they never get their comeuppance. <laughs> well, I suppose in history they do. Yeah, I feel like for the reader, you know you have that moment of they've left and and for me I like to think you know that's Olive's pins doing its work you know yeah. it's not gonna end well for them that's true yeah they're, they're gonna go to Berlin and like be on the outer rungs yeah, of, oh, yeah they're yeah. not gonna get they're not even gonna get close to Hitler oh no no no. <laughs> no no he's not gonna bother with that yeah yeah because that's the other thing about Dr. Lightbody he's this kind of golden um self-appointed expert in this stuff but he's so obviously rubbish he's so obviously terrible (laughs) and useless and um and so yeah he absolutely doesn't have the pair of them don't have what it takes to even become good nazis (laughs) so you know i have faith muriel could be a good nazi (laughs) in as such as that can exist yeah Yeah. (laughs) um so we gotta talk about the ending because honestly i love this book Read it in a day on holidays. Fantastic. Just on the beach. Lovely. Yeah, and it's ideal. nice and lightweight as well, so you don't get a tired wrist. Yeah. Um, but uh, the ending is bizarre. Yes. The, okay. So here's the deal. Um, do <laughs> when you, you try and describe this ending, you're going to sound like a mad woman. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Let me just stop the podcast here, everyone. <laughs> So the deal is, is that Rupert, who I have problems with, our romantic lead, um, is morally opposed to the idea of jilting a woman. Okay, so he wants. Do they want him? They want Muriel to leave 
Rupert, so Rupert won't jilt Muriel. Mm-hmm. Um, but Muriel will only do that, like she wants to be a countess so badly, she'll only do that if she believes there is a genetic reason to not marry Rupert. And so they pay some weird cousins... <laughs> from Birmingham, obviously. From, from Bur- <laughs> who are also of Irish descent, it is pointed out several times, which is weird, who are described in the most vile way, yeah. in a way that I'm like, Eva, were you high? Are you having yeah. a What's bad trip? she talks about... She has the dad, is it Melvin, describe his sons at one point early on in the book as being just like lumps of flesh or something. Yeah. Like they're just lumps of meat. Just like they're like 12 year old boys <laughs> lolling on the mattress on the ground yeah, with yeah. half a sandwich in their mouth. <laughs> yeah. It's like dystopian, yeah. this family. There's so many different threads in yeah. this book. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, the butler. Prune. Prune. Oh, the, he, that's a good character. He's great pays them to pretend to be deranged and he puts them in like a tower and they pretend to be chickens (laughs) and then they show this to Muriel and she goes well I can't marry you and then she fucks off like that's it then that's the end of the book (laughs) yeah that's that's it what do you think Laura well I I, I feel like I really we've all been on deadline (laughs) we've all been on deadline yeah I I enjoy it for several reasons and one of them is I really like it feels like because she's this amazing children's writer as well it feels that to me feels like that's straight out of a children's book Mm. um and I like how she brings some of these kind of slightly more madcap ideas and characters into her older writing but I also think it works because it's Prume who puts the idea together. That's mm-hmm. the, the key to me, is because the butler, who is so straight-laced, who is the most, um, it, you know, like the absolute stereotype of what you imagine a great butler yeah, to be. Yeah, very remains of the day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and very, so very um, practical, very sensible, doesn't like a lot of fuss, comes up with what has to be the most ludicrous, <laughs> dramatic, insane... And look, and everyone is like, this won't work. <laughs> everyone is like, there are a lot of moving parts involved in this very elaborate plan. Like, there must be a yeah. simpler way. If you're going to plan a wedding day, just make it simple, you know? Yeah. But then I love also they have... Um, it, the way it's enacted is very Jane Eyre and they have this reference to Jane Eyre in there yes. where Dr. Lightbody's kind of compelled to, does anyone object? And he gets up and and it's, there are mad people in the tower! Oh and, and they all get dragged out of the wedding to go and see them. And it's this brilliant throwaway line that's like, and the parson, the parson who had read Jane Eyre four times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how everyone's really bemused. And, and then also how there's this great line about um, Rupert's mother who doesn't know about the plan. And so there's kind of Rupert's looking over at her and she's looking really puzzled. And then as the, as the kind of tale unfolds, the very last thing in that chapter before they go off to see the thing is she gets to her feet and, and very dramatically is like... 
The truth is out now, Rupert. There's no use trying to hide from this any longer. And he's so baffled. Oh and there, I find the humour in that so well handled. It's so farcical, isn't yeah, it? it? It really, is, does, like really does have that really farcical quality yeah. that I enjoy. But it is absolutely bonkers. It's completely mad. Mad and mental. And I don't mind. Yeah, know? no, I enjoy it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just love it. Um, the one thing we haven't really talked about, because... Unfortunately, it's kind of one of the lesser compelling parts of the book, is the romance. Mm. Um, so Anna and Rupert, they have a lot of um, very sexually charged scenes. Yeah, I'm actually quite into the romance in this book, but you said you have like you're not so keen on Rupert. You have issues. Um, with him. I I for, he doesn't really do a lot. Mm. He kind of first comes upon. Uh, Anna in the she's having a bath in the lake and it's all it's it's very like oh this is straight out of a romance novel <laughs> and I love it yeah and like her I'm hair super is green covering yes. all of her bits yeah. and stuff and um, he kind of has this weird thing with her hair and I just I don't really see their their click do you know what I mean mm. it's not brimming with charisma for uh, me I feel like I feel like I really enjoy uh, one of the things that I really like about their romances in it is that. Um, instead of it being um, one of these things where they're both kind of denying their feelings, I feel like it, and then at the end, they kind of realise that they're in love with each other. I What I enjoy about it is that there's a sense that, for me, I felt like there's an immediate kinship between them. Mm. They recognise something in each other immediately. And the conversations that they have are, are slightly like wandering, but it's like that that lovely thing sure, of very being able to burning. follow yeah. each other's train of thought. And then relatively early on in the book, they they both kind of admit to themselves that they're in love with each other. So the, and, and the way that that's written, I think, is so nice. Like there's, mm. there's really... One uh, moment that I think really stood out for me when I was reading it this time was when they're just in the garden and they're having a chat and she's looking at the roses and she's sort of talking to him and there's this moment where they're not talking about anything super emotional and there's this moment where she writes in parentheses his aside, which is something like, um, and what would you say if I um, cut all these roses off and lay them in your lap? Mm. And it's like at that point, there's been no explicit idea that they're in love with each other. He, they haven't kind of had much physical interaction, but there's a sense that I like that there's this really deliberate and it's marked out on the page as this deliberate aside where you get this moment of kind of panic in yeah. him. And that's, and that's what it comes out as quite often, right? When he goes, when he touches her hair, he has this like moment of panic and he's yeah. like, well, I guess that's my one moment of... Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I know I really buy into it. No, I, 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 I think it. what it is, I do believe in the love. I just think maybe I'm just... Jilting someone isn't that bad. And he just, he just <laughs> lets it go too far. Yeah, but that's like, this is why I so say, I was talking to her, Eva Ibbotson's grandson about her, and he said um, she was a huge Georgette Hayer fan. Like, oh, had like shells of Georgette yeah. Hayer. And it, once he said it, that's exactly what I was like. Of course she was. Of course she was. Yeah. And I think you see that that's 
propriety. That's it, yeah, isn't it? it is. There's like a Regency vibe of I. It's impossible for me to be break the, my words. The jilty, <laughs> yeah. the jilter. Um, yeah, and it's it it's difficult. But then I think she kind of saves that a little at the end by having that moment where. Um, in the wedding ceremony, he decides he's not going to marry her, right? But mm. it's before he can say no that uh, suddenly the thing is sprung on yes, him. Yes, you are right. Because he says, he told Olive that if she wasn't the bridesmaid, there would be no wedding. And then there's this whole moment where the, the ceremony started and Olive's not turned up and he's like, well, that's the promise, you know, that's another promise that's that I made. One promise cancels another one. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, and he kind of knows that he can't do it. So there is, I, I think that's an important moment in the story because he, I think if it had been like you knew he was just going to go through with it and marry her yeah. and then it was only Prune's scheme that saved him, it wouldn't be as satisfying. Right. Yeah. Um, there's like, one thing that's so beautiful about the writing, and I, I don't really read out that much on this podcast. And I'm going <laughs> to do it twice. I don't really like reading out loud, which is, bad for selling books um but there's this part where they have this costume party and she is it's it's kind of the centerpiece of the book really and uh, they've invited all the russian ballerinas who all reckon on her brothers her her friends (laughs) like dear friends the russian ballet (laughs) and um there's a bit where she has to pretend that she isn't a maid that she's just there in costume as a maid which is just perfect lovely and she dances with him and they're at that point they're so aware of how in love with each other they are and she's already confessed her feelings to him in Russian and he'll never know what she said but you know whatever he knew what she means Um, and they're waltzing and oh I just loved this so much and it's so sentimental and it's such garbage but it's so but it's so beautiful okay I'm gonna read it I'm gonna read it to this waltz born in a distant snowbound country out of longing for just a flower-scented summer night as this, Rupert and Anna danced. They were under no illusions. The glittering chandeliers, the gold mirrors with their drapes acanthus leaves, the pungent violins. It might be the stuff of romance, but this was no romance. It was a moment in a lifeboat before it sank beneath the waves. A walk across the sunlit courtyard towards the firing squad. This waltz was all they had. And I, reader, cried when I read that because this is a book where people do get killed by firing yeah, squad. Absolutely. That is not a phrase she just put in there yeah. lightly. Her father was probably yes. excused that way. Yes, yes. And I think they're kind of, uh, they're both characters who have known this tremendous amount of loss and been in these really terrible situations and they're ready to metabolize another one yeah and they just and they're ready for that to be their lives again and there's this kind of golden sunlit moment and it's such it's so well done the way that everyone around them can it's can see the love coming off them um and it's another one of those scenes where they don't the, it, she makes such a point of saying, you know, they don't talk while they're dancing. They yeah. just kind of stare at each other. And it's this high, high, high romance. But that scene, maybe more than any of the others, is what is one of the ones that I think is really like that fairy tale quality of the story. That mm. It gives you that really mm. comforting, familiar sentimental romance yeah. that you can just kind of relax and look into. <laughs> this, is, this is a perfect um, um, of where, you know, how 
how highbrow my cultural tastes are in that I just thought of the film Anastasia. Yes, I've said this before, <laughs> that the closest thing that we have to an Eva Ibbotson adaptation is, is Anastasia. The Fox animation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because they, they, it is really so, such a similar, such a similar vibe. It, the more I think about it, the more it is. And yes. the, the, same, the same sense of this, like, um, terrible things happened and happen every day but like there is this joy and this merriness kind of to it that is so I mean and people talk about like Disney being like oh the stories are so dark it's like the Anastasia movie starts with the pretext of so a girl's entire family is murdered <laughs> slaughtered yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like it, it deals with like PTSD in like yeah. really interesting ways yeah. and it's, it's just such a good but yeah but that there is a kind of a bit where they sort of have their last dance before he has... And it's the kind of thing of like, well, we're yeah. from two different worlds and it yeah. will never work out. And Yeah. Yeah. And in in this book, I think it's so it's so nice because you get the, those moments of shadow in there as well. There's And, and it comes through from the, the different characters. So, so you have Muriel in there who's kind of getting stuck in making everyone's lives miserable but there, there's a lot of other stuff happening too like they do talk about um the people that they've lost there's that scene between um Rupert and his best friend Tom where they both talk about how their their brothers have died yeah and they have survivor's guilt and in this book that's so light and delicate yeah. and airy and 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 comfortable to have, it, it it still has these this kind of shade and shadow in it that I think makes it work so beautifully and so in that moment when you're reading it you're absolutely there with them you absolutely Mm. know this is just one fleeting moment even though what one of the things that is incredible for me about Eva Ibbotson as a writer is that she's such a safe pair of hands and you know it's kind of going to be okay that is that is nice you know from like page one it's going to be okay any bad thing it won't be bad for too long (laughs) yeah and she said that that's you know that's something that she said that she can't um that she she didn't like to have her character suffer that she yeah. couldn't keep it up for very long she's like a Nancy Midford who's a nice person <laughs> <laughs> yeah well she described these um, her romance novels these were the ones that she was the proudest of and she said she described them as books that she wrote for women in their sick beds and I just yes. think that's perfect isn't it that's it exactly is what it they're is. such sick bed books yeah they are they're such a they're such a comforting thing they just make you feel so much better when I finished reading one of her books when I finished reading this book today I just felt one of the reasons that I was crying was because this is gonna sound so ridiculous but was because I felt so kind of well looked after yes. <laughs> but it was that feeling of like when, some, when someone when loves me, someone <laughs> loves me. Like, someone's just taking such good care of me and I don't know what to do with myself your eyes are like shiny yeah, it's exactly. been a lot of shiny moments in it that we just met so it's quite yes. awkward yeah exactly that exactly uh, that yeah. yeah it's beautiful <laughs> I feel very shiny now. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful place to leave it. What actually? Um, what is the next Eva Ibbotson book I should read after this? Um, so you, there aren't really any bad choices. Um, my favorite after this is maybe A Company of Swans, mm-hmm. uh, which is the first Eva Ibbotson that I read. So it has a special place in my heart, which is. Um, 
uh, set in Manaus in the rainforest and has ballerinas in. Oh, um, good. <laughs> get excited. So... <laughs> Love it. All right. And, and you obviously have written many books. Um, <laughs> tell us about your new one that I'm looking at right now. It's a beautiful jade cover with a golden embossed. Yes. yes. It's, this could be any yeah. day that's in the cover, honestly. <laughs> yeah. They, um, Scholastic look after me so well with my covers. Um, the cover for this is um, the artist Yaron Tong and the designer is Jamie Tell Gregory. us the name of the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. The book, the, book is, the book is much less important than the beautiful cover. Uh, the book is called Andre Dancing Star. Mm-hmm. and it's a much ado about nothing prequel set in 1930s Italy lovely obviously so we've got all the Ibbotsons we've got uh-huh. interwar uh-huh, uh-huh. we've got um, mainland Europe yep 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 there's so a much girl. it was so funny when I was rereading this today and I was like oh wow that's I where I got this she's a huge huge influence on my young adult writing definitely and there's there's lots of Ibbotson in this one um but yeah it's it, it's a really fun book it was really fun to write this has been sentimental garbage and i've been karen o'donoghue you can follow me on twitter at zaraline that's c-z-a-r-o-l-i-n-e or email me by the podcast at zaralineodonoghue at gmail.com this has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. 